0: Amen. 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 We're here to worship the Lord and, you know, when you come to church, uh, it's important for you to come with the kind of attitude that, uh, that says, I'm here not because, you know, I'm, I want to be seen, so to speak, but I'm here because I want to worship the Lord and uh, I want to gather with God's people. And man, don't we need to gather with God's people these days? I tell you what, we need to have the fellowship of God's people because it just, this world is a cold, crazy place without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and His people. And that's what church is all about. Yeah, you can worship online, and it, I'm so glad we have the capacity to do that, but there's no substitute for being with people, doing life, sharing life together. And, and I just want to encourage you, if you've, uh, if you've not got connected into a small group where you can share life with others, you're missing part, the crucial essential part of what it means to be a believer because when you get saved you're born into the family of God God doesn't expect us to be orphans he expects us to share life and I'll tell you the greatest joys I've had in ministry have been with people and um, uh, you know and of course with the Lord Lord's a person but you know you know what I'm talking about right so I want to encourage you to try to get connected with a small group. We have uh, we have several small groups that meet on Sunday morning that are right in the like during the first service. I know you guys like to get up a little bit later, and that's understandable. <laughs> and particularly if you got kids, man, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But if there's any way you can get connected with a small group, either on Sunday morning or. Uh, You know, maybe sometimes um, it would be at a different night of the week. We have some that are working on that right now. Well, I want to ask you a question. Do you guys know who Ricky Henderson is? Anybody here know who Ricky Henderson is? If you know who Ricky, okay, I see some hands. I see some of you sports buffs, some of you baseball guys out there. Who is Ricky Henderson? Anybody want to take a shot? Okay, baseball player, Oakland A's. And he has a distinction of being the all-time record holder for stolen bases. Did you guys know that? He stole more bases than anybody else except for that guy that's in San Quentin now. But anyway, uh, that's another story. So Ricky Henderson, I have a picture of him. This is a, a base that he stole in 1988. And, uh, and it's, it's pretty cool because just this past week, the uh, Baltimore Orioles were playing this, the, uh, the Padres, the San Diego Padres. Did anybody by any chance see that game this week or maybe you saw some highlights of it? What was interesting is that one of the Padre players, Fernando uh, Tatas Jr., he was on third base and as he was on third base, he looked up at the, the left-handed pitcher for, uh, for the, uh, the, the Oreos. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but Perez. Anyway, he looked at Perez, and Perez was a left-handed pitcher. So consequently, when Perez is standing on the mound and he's getting ready to pitch toward home plate, he's left-handed, so his back is this way. And the challenge for a left-handed pitcher is you have you can, you, know, you can see first base pretty good. You can throw them out if they get off that base. But third base is a little bit more difficult. And so he's standing here getting ready to, you know, pitch the ball. And the guy on third base noticed that he wasn't paying attention. And he took a few jog steps. And then he went into a full-out sprint and he stole home plate. Man, what an incredible thing to do, stealing home plate. Uh, that, that doesn't happen very often, but, but I remember when, we were, uh, when I was coaching little league baseball, it was fun with the kids, and some of you might have that opportunity to do that too now, but I remember doing that. And one of the things that we did as coaches when they were real little, and they still do it, they do it in, in high school ball, and some of y'all, you guys played and stuff like that. There's, a, there's a, a coach down the first baseline and a coach on the third baseline. And so when somebody hits a ball and they're running toward first base, normally the coach that's on the first baseline will tell them whether or not they can proceed to second or whether they need to hold up. And the challenge for little kids is they love to run. And they hit the ball and it's about, you know, they're they're rounding first and you're you're saying, you know, stop, stop on first, stop on first because you, you don't want them to get thrown out at second. But you say, stop on first, stop on first, and they just keep on running around the bases and making out. That's just kids having fun. And it should be fun for them. But you know, the coach provides a sign that tells the player it is now the time to stop or now the time to run. And we learn a lot about life when we play baseball or football or some other activity. And we we begin to recognize the signs. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series of messages on the return of Christ. And Jesus makes it very plain that we do not know the day nor the hour of his return. But he said there are some signs that indicate when his return is near. And I want to look at that this morning. So, I'd like to begin, first of all, by drawing your attention to Matthew chapter 24, and I I think we even have this on the screen, but on one occasion, Jesus was sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and in Matthew 24, his disciples come to him and they say, tell us when these things will be. He's talking about the return of Christ now and the, the end of the age. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And and then Jesus begins to talk about a number of things, and we're going to deal with some of those that come up. We'll be talking about the rapture of the church. We'll be talking about the rise of Antichrist. We'll be talking about the millennial reign. And we're going to look at some very interesting things in the days ahead about what the Bible says about the end of the age. But Jesus has these strong words in Matthew 24 that give us an indication that the return of the Lord is near. And and I have to tell you, when I look at this world today and I see what is going on in our world today, I'm surprised God hadn't already shut the door. You know, I mean, the Bible tells us that in the days of Noah when things were really, really bad and every inclination of the heart of man was evil, The Bible says that God caused it to rain, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained, but he saved one family, the family of Noah. He put them in an ark, and then God sealed the door behind them. And everyone else on earth perished because they were not right before God. God has a limit to his mercy. But God is merciful. And so God restarted with Noah and his family. And the Bible tells us that God had instructed people to spread out and fill the earth and and be fruitful and multiply and all that kind of stuff. But there were some people who decided that they would just stay on the plain of Shinar and build a great city. And they decided they would build a tower to the heavens as a monument to themselves. And and what we believe is that Nimrod was one of the leaders of that. The Bible calls Nimrod a, a hunter of men. They were arrogant. They were foolish. And the Bible says God went down and confused their languages and therefore, they had to disperse and go all over the world. The Bible tells us that in due season, Jesus came into this world, born of a woman, the Word made flesh, and the Scripture tells us all about his life, what he did, how he, he he'd lived a, a righteous, holy life, never committed a sin, and died on a cross so that he might become that sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible says at the crucifixion event, there was darkness over the land as if God had taken his face away from the world and there were earthquakes. And then, praise God, he intervened on Pentecost Sunday and poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. And ever since then, things have been different. But the scripture tells us that one day, when men are living as they were in the time of Noah, when the inclination of hearts are so depraved and wicked, one day God will begin that process. This age will end, the age of grace in the church, and God will bring judgment into this world. I have to tell you that God is holy and righteous and he cannot abide sin. He can't wink at sin like maybe you and I do because he's holy and just. But on the other side of that coin, he is loving and merciful and he has provided provision for us in Christ. And it's interesting as we look at God's word this morning because Jesus tells them that the the disciples say, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then if you look in Matthew 24, verse 32, Jesus says these words, from the fig tree learn its lesson. Now, a fig tree was a common tree in in Palestine, in, in Jerusalem, in Judea. The fig tree was a symbol and has been a symbol of the nation of Israel in the Bible. It represents the nation of Israel. And so Jesus and the disciples knew this. And so Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Okay, that was one way that you could tell that summer was near because the the fig tree would begin to to blossom and the leaves would be green and, and summer is approaching and they didn't have the weather forecasting like we do these days, but they understood that. So Jesus instructs them to learn its lesson. And then in verse 33, he says, so also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus gives a promise here, and as we understand this prophetically, he has something to say not just about the fig tree, but for his disciples and for us to understand since the fig tree represents Israel there is a special time of regathering of the nation of Israel that indicates that the, the return of Christ is near. And not only did Jesus make this plain in Matthew 24, but we also see that there are some prophetic visions that clarify the same thing. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 37 this morning, so I invite you to turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets. If you're wondering where is Ezekiel, it's in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. So I want to invite you to go to Ezekiel chapter 37. It's a fascinating story here, a fascinating vision. And God is very colorful and very visionary. And, uh, and he called his prophets, and, and particularly uh, for Ezekiel, he, he gave him this incredible, uh, this incredible uh, vision. And, and some of you probably know this vision, but you wonder about that song... Um, the thigh bones connected to the hip bone, the hip bone, you know that, how does that song go, can you sing it Joanne, (laughs) okay, you guys got it, go ahead, sing, you got it Naveen, good job, All right, (laughs) there you go, all right, we know that song as a kid, all right, well this is where it comes from, let's all stand together and let's read uh, Ezekiel chapter 37 beginning with verse number 1. Ezekiel 37, verse number 1. And and my Bible has the valley of dry bones. There's a valley here, and it's full of dry bones. They're old. They're decrepit. They're void of life. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Look up here just for a moment. Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, were in despair. They were hopeless. There was no life. They turned away from God. And they were in a hopeless predicament. But God is merciful. And I want you to notice in verse number 12... You shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning and for the inspiration and the mercy that it brings to us, because Lord, we live in a land that seems to be dried up of your knowledge in so many ways, the unfruitful, the ungodly. The wicked seem to have their way and they walk in ways that are extremely abominable and displeasing to you. But we thank you, O God, that you can give life to those who look to you. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we might be aware of what needs to happen in our own personal lives. And, Lord, that we might have hope in you breathing life into us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. When you look at this passage of Scripture, I want you to know that this passage of Scripture has to do with the regathering of Israel. It has to do with drawing the Jewish people back to Israel for a, a nation that was no nation to be revived. And not just to have, uh, have skin and, and sinew and, and bone and, and, and flesh but to also have life, have breath. And, and when God speaks to the, uh, the, the prophet here and tells him to say to the four uh, winds or the four corners, he's speaking about calling on God to pour out his spirit on the nation of Israel, the people of God. The reality is that this passage, as, it, as we understand it in prophetic history, it recognizes the fact that one day, God will regather his people into a land, into a place. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, that would be a sign that summer was near, so to speak, that the end of the age is near. John Walbert says the regathering of Israel in 1948 was a super sign that God was doing a work of grace and that his coming is at hand. Now, I know some of you probably have never heard this preached on before and and but what i want you to understand is that when people who study prophecy and look at the bible look at this they are amazed as a matter of fact some call this the super sign of the return of christ in other words in our generation in our time we need to be able to understand that when this happens and when this happened and when the other things happen the generation that sees those things will know that the return of the Lord is at hand. I mentioned just a moment ago about the Tower of Babel when God confused the languages of the people on the the, the plain of Shinar who was building the Tower of Babel. And one of the things that God said about these people was that their sin, their their sin would be no, no, no bounds, that they would just do whatever they wanted to do. And so he went down to confuse their language. Man is extremely intelligent. God has gifted us. But the problem is when we use our intelligence to do things that are so ungodly and so wicked and, and certainly we can invent reasons to do all these things. The question is, in my own personal life, and the question for you should be not can I do this, but should I do this? Is this helpful? Is this hurtful? Well, as we look at this passage, I want you to understand the backdrop now. The prophet Ezekiel was sent to prophesy because the people of Israel had been wicked and they had They had transgressed the law of God, they were were unjust, there was no justice, they were were just walking in a way they shouldn't walk, and God had planned for the nation of Israel to help others uh, receive the Messiah, to get to know the Messiah, but they turned their back on what God wanted to do. But what is amazing, when you look at the people, the Jewish people, and what I want to do for just a few moments here before we get into the pastoral application of this passage what I want to do is kind of give you a picture of what has happened to the Jewish people from the biblical days until now. And you know, we are such a young nation. We're 200 and how many years old? Something like whatever that is. I, I don't know. I'm not good with math, but I know it's over 200 years. Right? Okay. So we're very young, and, and most of us in here probably are not older than, I don't know, 100, right. <laughs> if, if Thank you. I don't know of anybody here that's over 100. I know we have some, a lot of folks that are under 100, and, um, and, and, but the point is that we're, you know, when the Bible says that your life is like a vapor that's here in the morning and it's gone, you know, I mean, it is true. We live short lives. But for 1,500 years, 1,500 years, the nation of Israel did not exist. Do you realize that they were a people who not only lost their homeland because they had been deported and dispersed all over the globe, but they lost their language the Hebrew language was a lost language they didn 't even know how to pronounce it and it wasn 't until after uh, many years of study that they began it. matter of fact, did you realize that the uh, the Septuagint uh, was the, the the Greek the Septuagint that we talk about in terms of biblical uh, materials and and, and biblical uh, um, uh, Bibles and things the Septuagint was in use by the people in Jesus day and it was a greek translation of the old testament they didn't know how to pronounce hebrew but they the scholars begin to work with it and they begin to figure it all out but the bottom line what i'm telling you is this is an incredible israel is an incredible story to god's provision we talk about how god has preserved the bible But if you want to really see the hand of God, look at the people of Israel and how God has protected the Jewish people. Now, Isaiah also talks about this regathering. And in Isaiah chapter 66, verse number 8, I have a a screenshot of it here for you. Isaiah the prophet speaks about this miraculous thing that the nation of Israel will be regathered. And he says, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. You know, the prophet Isaiah says something pretty profound that was fulfilled in 1948. On May the 15th, shortly before 4 p.m. in 1948, David Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv, he raised the Star of David and Israel claimed her independence as a nation. Now there was a lot of stuff that went on before that. But what is noteworthy and remarkable is the fact that there has never been in the history of the world a people who were so thoroughly scattered and lost so much and then came back to form a nation. And in one moment, the nation declared their independence and uh, what an incredible thing happened in 1948. Now, let me just say that Ezekiel 37 speaks to this, as does Isaiah 6066, 8. But let me just say that the sign of Israel's rebirth is a sign for us that the return of Christ is getting very near. The summer is nigh. Let me just share with you a little bit about this miracle, because I want you to understand the historical ramifications. So we're going to do some historical stuff, and then I'm going to get into pastoral stuff, okay? First of all, we know about the biblical history. God calls Abraham out of Ur of Chaldees, okay? And Abraham leaves a place of paganism, and he was a pagan, but God spoke to his heart, called him out of that, and called him to to a life of following him, and, and he did, and and, and i got to tell you something. This is what's so exciting to me as a, as a pastor and as a preacher and as a believer. There are moments, listen to me, there are moments when a person has a sense of God's calling on their life. You've experienced that if you've been born again. And you know in that moment of time, it's not just, a, it's not just an intellectual thing. It is a heartfelt sense of man I know that there's a holy God and I need mercy and you know what the Bible says that Jesus said when he sent the Holy Spirit and he speaks about this in the Gospel of John he says I'm sending the helper, the counselor the Holy Spirit and he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and the judgment that is to come He's going to convict us of our shortfallings and our sinfulness before God. He's going to convict us of the righteousness that's in Jesus Christ. That's why salvation comes as we hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing the gospel and learning and being exposed to it. And God takes that gospel message. It changes our life. But he also convicts us of the judgment that God is going to one day bring on this world. And typically, it's in that moment... When a person either responds by saying, Lord, I believe in you. I believe you died for my sin and you rose from the grave. And I don't understand it all, but I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. Please come into my life and save me. And it's in that moment when people are born from above. I hope you've experienced that birth from above. It's not by flesh or blood or by the will of man, but it's by the Spirit of God. And God does that. But Jesus also says it's a conviction of the judgment to come. Now, what has happened all these centuries with the nation of Israel and why is the regathering of Israel that began... Some say 1917, but for sure independence declared in 1948. Let me just share a little bit about this. In the biblical history, Abraham was called out. Then we have Jacob and Esau. Uh, We see the, the Israelites in Egypt and Pharaoh's trying to stamp them out, destroy them. We see them going into the promised land and the Amalekites and the Philistines and the Edomites. They're all trying to destroy Israel. It's interesting when you look at the history of Israel, it's been one group of people trying to destroy them the whole time. The truth is Satan started that in the Garden of Eden when Cain slew slew Abel. But I've got a screen that I want you to see because some of you, you know about what happened in Nazi Germany during the 1930s and early 40s. But I want you to look at this because every century since way back when the Jewish people have been persecuted and there have been attempts to exterminate them, but they have prevailed. 722 bc the assyrians came in and destroyed israel the northern kingdom this is when the kingdom was divided and they 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 scattered them they deported them they began that process at that time judah the southern kingdom they took solace and comfort with egypt they looked to egypt but it was short lived because in five, before 586, but certainly by 586 B.C., Babylon rolled into Judah and deported. They took people from their homes and they sent them back to Babylon and they dispersed them around. And you remember some of those names, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You probably remember those guys in the book of Daniel. Babylon. Well, One of the Babylonian leaders, it was Nebuchadnezzar, but after him, one of his grandsons was very wicked and did some wicked things in the temple of God, used some of the holy instruments to have an orgy and a party and all that, and God sent his handwriting on the wall. Many, many, tekel, parse, you have been weighed and found wanting. And in that moment and in that night, the Bible tells us that the Medes and the Persians rolled in and destroyed Babylon and took over. It was during that time then, finally, the, uh, the Persians gained the upper hand, and, and the Persian king, Artaxerxes, he made a decree that the Jewish people could actually go back to the Promised Land, and they could begin to rebuild. And so they began to go back. Ezra was one of those, and Nehemiah was one of those. And they came back, and they began to work on the temple. Ezra on the temple, Nehemiah, a little bit later, come back working on the wall, and guess what happened? They got there, and Sanballat and Tobiah and the people of that area tried to do war against them and stop them from rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Constantly in war. Alexander the Great came along. And he brought not only the Greek culture to Palestine, but he also brought the Greek language, and that's why the Hebrew language is lost, because the people had been dispersed so many times, and they began to lose it. And then, uh, and then after Alexander, he died, and then some of his generals took over. And, and finally, in 167 B.C., Antiochus IV came in and desecrated the temple. He, he, he destroyed the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. And, and just, you know, it was, again, the people of God persecuted, scattered, The Romans came in, and by A.D. 70, Rome had had enough of the rebellion that was there, and they completely destroyed the temple. the uh, The general Roman general Titus came in, and it said that when the Roman general Titus was there, that the soldiers got into a frenzy and they set fire to the temple. It was so hot, gold was running in the streets. And they said that Titus, the general, he tried to stop the soldiers. He said, don't do this, but they did it anyway. But the whole place, just as Jesus predicted, every stone in the temple was turned over and it was completely destroyed. They salted the land so you could not plant crops. And again, the people are destroyed and scattered. And it's like, man, what is going on with these people? They are must be hated of all nations, and they were and they are, and it's prophesied in the Bible. In, 7, uh, in, in 722, and that, uh, there's Muslim rule in 639 and then in AD 1099 uh, and, and Muhammad came along and, and all of that. But anyway, there's, there's like the pagan rule that's going on there. And, and in 1099, the Pope, I believe it was Pope Innocent, decided that anybody could be saved if they just went to the Holy Land and liberated the Holy Land from the Muslims. But the other thing they did was they killed any Jewish people that did not accept Christ. And people were murdered, put to death. Again, scattered. Did you realize that at 1144 in England a man who was Jewish but had turned his back on the Jewish people told them that a boy that was missing had been put to death by Jewish people as celebration of uh, blood libel, which was a belief and a rumor and an allegation that the Jewish people would sacrifice a Christian boy during the week of Passover. It was not true, and they later found the boy's body. No sign of any murder or anything like that. But this man turned his back, and in England, they began to persecute the Jews. And by 1290, did you realize that they had kicked the Jews out of Great Britain? (laughs) These people are going all over the world. Again, what is going on with these people? They're being scattered. In 1306, France did the same thing. In 1348, Germany experienced the Black plague, and they blamed the Jewish people, and they begin to persecute the Jews. Again, it's about a racial persecution that's taking place that I don't think we've seen in centuries, but it's well, we have seen it. We saw it last, last century. 20th century. 1478. Spanish Inquisition. The Catholic Church, under the leadership of the popes at that time, decided that if you were not a Christian, if you were a Jew, you had to become a Christian or you would be put to death. And they put many to death. 1517, the Ottoman Empire ruled the region. 1400 to 1500, Europe had a lot of anti-Semitism that was going on. In other words, just persecuting people based on their race. In 1880, the Russians began to persecute the Jews and they began to seize their land and their property and by 1919, they had expelled the Jews, as many as they could, from Russia. And then we all know what happened in the 1930s with Nazi Germany. Now I don't know, this has been a little history lesson, but i, I got to tell you something. I never realized all the persecution that these people had experienced in their life. In their nation. And as I look at that. I think to myself. Man this is. This is incredible. That they still exist today. And that they exist back in Jerusalem. And Judea. And Samaria. It was a miracle. That God preserved their lives. And brought them back together. And Ezekiel 37 is that prophecy of the regathering of Israel. And we bring that up today because we're thinking about the end times and how do we know when Christ is near, when his return is near? One reason we know that is because Israel raised the flag and declared independence in 1948. They are a nation now today. And you know, what's interesting what happened on that day because on May 15th, when they raised the Star of David, everybody had a big celebration in the area, right? no. When they raised the flag of independence, and later on they had another war in 67, but on that day when they raised the flag of independence, they were attacked by Egypt, by Jordan, by Syria, by Lebanon, by Saudi Arabia, and by Iraq. 55 million Arabs came against 64,000 Jews in Israel. And guess what happened? God gave Israel the victory. Now, if that is not a miracle by the hand of God, I don't know what is. It was part of the prophetic plan of God to deliver them. And then again, they were attacked in 1967. They called that the Six-Day War, I believe. And in that time, Israel prevailed once again. I'm just telling you that God has protected them all of these millennia for a reason. And that is because he made a promise to Abraham. Follow me, I will show you a land where you are to go and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And Jesus, letting his disciples know, when the time is at hand for my return and the end of the age, the fig tree will blossom. And that's exactly what has happened. I share this with you because as we get into the study of the end times, uh, we'll talk about some very interesting things and I'm sure you'll be here and want to be a part of that. But I'm just telling you that that happened in 1948 and some believe it began the process in 1917 with the Balfour Declaration and all that, but But the bottom line is that we are in a season now where we need to keep our eyes on what's happening in the Middle East. And it's funny how that little piece of real estate in the Middle East always seems to dominate the news of the world. And that's because God has made Israel a cup of trembling to the nations. That's what the Bible says. Now, okay, we've got all that. Let me quickly give you a couple things from a pastoral perspective. And let's go to that next slide, please. In Ezekiel 37... What, what this teaches us is that sin is a destroyer of people. The, the, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, they willfully, they, they left the Lord. They went in a wicked direction and though God had promised to bless them, he also brought judgment to them and they were scattered all over the world because of it. And even as sin will destroy an individual life, it can destroy a nation. This is what burdens my heart so much right now about our nation because it seems like we have such crazy people that are in charge and have mouthpieces and are so vocal about wicked ways that it seems like the whole nation is messed up. I don't think the whole nation's messed up. I think God's people know what's right and wrong. But I think some of the leaders in our nation, they're going to answer for their ungodliness. And I'm just telling you what. The Bible says... That blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, but sin is a reproach to any people. And you must be sure that your sin will find you out. And, and I believe that, that that could be happening to us now. I just know this. We have we're ruining a generation right now. We and God's people need to stand up and say enough of this mess. I'm, how many of y'all know about Kirk Cameron? Anybody here know about Kirk Cameron? Kirk Cameron is a godly man. He's he's got the Fireside Chats and and I forget the name of his group. But but you know Kirk Cameron has been on a, a mission here lately to take good books to libraries. And instead of having these books that promote ungodliness and bring confusion to so many people, he's wanting to read these children's books to help children to understand, you know, what is right and what is true. And you know that some of the librarians and some of the library systems have banned him from coming. Did y'all know that? But praise God, he's, he's doing a great job and hopefully making a difference. He's one person I know that's standing up. And I want to encourage you, you don't have to create enemies. You just have to say, this is right. And, and this is the way I want to live my life. And, and I don't want us to promote things that are going to hurt our families and kids and destroy our nation. And some of this stuff will. But sin is a destroyer of people. And, and, and all I can tell you is that God brought the flood. God brought uh, the Tower of Babel, the confusion of languages. I, when I think about Europe, he, Europe had a fantastic history of Christianity. They were sending missionaries out. And unfortunately, in many places in Europe now, it's hard to find a church that's actually working. Why? Because they began to turn away from... Believing the truth of God's word. But sin is a destroyer of people. The second thing though, that I want you to see is that as God told Ezekiel to prophesy to those bones. He said, Lord, only you know whether those bones can live again. And by the way, I just want to say this. When Ezekiel prophesied to those bones, God brought life. And it's important for us to understand from a pastoral perspective that we are to proclaim the gospel and the life-giving power of God into a person's life. They may look like dried up old bones that are beyond help, but God can change the heart. And so for us, we recognize that sin can destroy lives, but the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ can change a person and bring hope and peace. i got to tell you something. Just in recent days, I've been amazed at the goodness of God. People coming up to me after a service or sometime during the week and saying, I need to get saved. And, And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is exciting. And I mean, with tears down faces people's hearts so open to what God can do because He promises to give them new life if they will simply receive Him and they will allow Him to be the Savior and Lord of their lives. Jesus teaches us in His Word that to those who receive Him, He gives the right to become children of God. Not born of flesh, not born of the will of man, but born of the Spirit of God. And and all I can tell you is that there's a moment in time for each of us as believers when we recognize there's something lacking and we understand that we are before God and there is really not any hope for us apart from the shed blood of Jesus who died for our sins and the promise of eternal life that is in him. The Bible says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, and whoever believes in Him will not perish, but they will have everlasting life. John, the apostle, said, He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. There are a lot of people out there whose lives are like dry bones. There's a lack of fulfillment There's a lack of peace, but in Christ, there is life, eternal life. We look at our world and we think, man, I'm just walking around a valley of dry bones. What a mess. And we might even kick that bone. Get out of my way. As far as I'm concerned, you can just burn up. But God told Ezekiel, prophesy. You say it. You share it. And guess what? Ezekiel learned that God can bring life to that which is dead. The Bible says that outside of Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And, you know, you might be thinking to yourself, maybe God said, well, can, can, Joe, can, can Joe live? I mean, Joe looks like he's pretty dead. Is it possible for Joe to live? And I'm just using a name. I don't even know Joe here right now. But anyway, God knows whether Joe can live. And our obligation is to remember that sin destroys lives, but God has told us to preach and share the good news. The third thing, and I think it should be evident from the passage, is that because Israel exists as a nation, we're getting very close to the return of Christ. So I hope and pray you've settled the account with the Lord in your own life. So that if He chooses to pour out His wrath on this world, as he said he would, that you are not an object of that wrath. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the words, Lord, that you give us. And Father, help me to be as convincing and as kind and as loving as you would have me to be. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are Some are struggling because they have a sense of hopelessness. Lord, remind them that all things are possible with you. That you can do exceedingly abundantly more in them and through them than they could ever scarcely imagine. Father, I pray for those maybe who are watching this broadcast and not here with us. And Lord, I just pray for any that hear these words, Lord God, that if there's a sense of they ought to trust you, Lord, that you would bring them to that place to where they would cry out to you. And to let others know that they have accepted you. And Lord, I pray for your great blessing on their lives. Bring them back to life, Lord. Bring them to that place of hope and peace and productivity. Father, bless them, I pray, with your very presence. In Jesus' name.